It should be that lion from the MGM. <laughs> Leo, yeah, the yeah, lion. Yeah, I think they're all called Leo, aren't they? Or Lionel. Uh, <laughs> or Baxter. Notice that? I'd say probably like one in three lions are called Baxter. <laughs> I, no, honestly, is this, some, is this from something? That's a bit silly. Oh. Because <laughs> I believe... I, that, that would ring true in sort of a 40s, like, yeah, Ringling Brothers, they had three lions named Baxter. If you had told me that, I would have bought it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Baxter. <laughs> there we go. There's Daniel laughing at his own jokes. Yeah. We need I'm laughing to- at the name Baxter. No offense to anyone called Baxter. Full offense to everyone named yeah. Baxter. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf, and Tiffin for Elevensies over here is Daniel. Uh, oh, um... Saved by the bell. You have time to think of something now, so I'm going to distract you so you can't. Eggs and a slice of cantaloupe for brunch. Is Abby? <laughs> so this is our last episode of season three and our last episode of 2022. I was going to give Daniel a co-host of the year award, but I've listened to some other podcasts and I've just found stronger candidates. Yeah. So we're going to give you guys updates on our season four plans at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. Here at Aston University, where Daniel and I work, we have put together an MA English program for practitioners of English, although anyone can do it. You don't have to be an English teacher. So if you're interested and would like Daniel and I to potentially teach you, please do sign up to our Aston MA English program. Right, we've had quite a few letters and recommendations in our inbox and on Twitter lately, haven't we? Yes, we have. We had a couple of quite, maybe not not similar, but complimentary letters. Summarise this first letter from a one of your students, Abby, mm-hmm. thanking you for the turn of the screw episode because it meant that students didn't have to read it. Uh, <laughs> um, Not the point, students. Here's a, here's, a, here's a bit. Sorry we didn't read The Stepford Wives. You seem so disappointed, lol. Could you podcast about that before term is over? So there you go. There's a request for us to <laughs> do the reading for them. And then next we've got quite a different letter from someone called Patty. I recently learned about your podcast when you talked about gothic fiction on Betwixt the Sheets, and I'm loving your discussions of classic literature. I started with Orlando since my husband and I recently rewatched the movie, and I read the book years ago, and it's so wonderfully odd. Your recap and analysis didn't disappoint, and I've been binge listening to SMFMS over the past few days. I love Abby's assessment of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof as a screwball tragedy and her comment in Wuthering Heights, quote, I love this story, it's really disturbing. Totally fit with my own reviews. I love Daniel's facility with accents. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> the, the, the matters. And the way he acknowledges Abby's comments with, that's funny, in a sincere but clinical tone. Yeah, if you want to be taught in a sincere but clinical way, do your, do your MA, Aston. Oh, Patty, thank you for that. Um, uh- Firstly, Daniel loves being complimented on his accent, so more of that, please. And I have to say, you are very good. You are certainly better than I am at them. Uh, in terms of Daniel laughing at my jokes, you you are a stingy bastard with your laughs. Sorry. I always no. I, I can only really laugh at myself. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I always consider it quite a victory when I get a, a robust laugh out of you. Yeah. Um, but mostly he just kind of smirks, which you guys can't really hear or see on your end of things. Yeah, sorry. So. Yeah, I am I am genuinely amused. I'm just emotionally constipated. That is what I said to you years ago, and you really take yeah, it to it. Yeah, yeah. You, you've snatched a compliment from the jaws of an insult there. Anyway, this is the bit that compliments the letter from the student. This is like the book club discussion that I'll never be able to have on some of my all-time favourite books. I've read most of the titles you've discussed, and I've decided I won't listen to the podcast till I've read the book. Lolita is next on my book list. I look forward to the discussion. That's interesting, isn't it? Some people listen as a supplement, and some people... Listen as the content itself. Yeah. Okay, and I will read a letter from Jennifer. I have been binging your podcast since I found it. I'm loving it while also having flashbacks to my time as an undergraduate English major and my years as a high school English teacher. I have a question for you before my suggestions. Do you find that there are certain works that pair up in a sort of literary WWF match? Or like the vampires versus werewolves in that one who's in that one series whose name I will not speak. Mm. For example, are you a Tolkien person or Lewis? Melville or Hawthorne? Chaucer or Boccaccio? Are there other pairs I've missed? Definitely Melville over Hawthorne. I was going to say, that's the one you and I have never been in more agreement over. Yeah. Yeah, Melville's like a genius, right? He's yeah, like I, yeah. I don't use that word very lightly, but especially compared to Hawthorne. Yeah, greatest novel of the 19th century. A little known book called Typey. <laughs> <laughs> I make a joke, it's actually my dick. <laughs> I thought you were going to make a joke, it's actually Pierre. <laughs> Chaucer or Boccaccio? I've never read Boccaccio, so I couldn't answer that one. I'm more a Tolkien person, although I respect Lewis. Well, I'm not going to say anything. Okay, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yeah. And then, uh, Jennifer, you have uh, quite a few suggestions here. Uh, things she either loved or hated from high school. Um, oh no! The aforementioned Melville hated Moby Dick, but plenty of queer coding. Oh no! Yeah, give it another go. I think get, I, get back on the the boat. I I read it expecting to hate it, and it completely blew me away. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Dashi blew you away, <laughs> if you will. You've you've listed a lot of suggestions here. Many of these are already on our long list. Um, some of them might even be appearing in season four. Mm. So just uh, do do stay tuned. I'm not going to read them all out here. But yeah, she ends, I better stop before this email becomes a novel itself. I mm. appreciate the podcast and your intelligent, irreverent takes on great books. Please keep it up. Jennifer. So hey. we intend to. Nice big pat on the back for us. <laughs> right, so Daniel, what is our text today? It's Christmas time. No. <laughs> <laughs> The punctuation. It's Christmas. Time for an epic, family-friendly blockbuster. <laughs> what better genre meets that demand than fantasy? <laughs> so let me take you to a strange land of forests and mountains populated by whimsical creatures, many of whom, it must be added, live weirdly essentialized mid-20th century middle-class lifestyles. You can't move here for brass kettles and toasted muffins. This magical land has its own myths and legends, its own lore, terminology, customs, rhymes and riddles. So let me ask you these riddles three on that note. Cut the music! Number one. Name a creature that lives under bridges and gets off on irking people. A troll? Yeah. Number two. Who is the most famous literary son of my hometown, Birmingham, and your adoptive city? Tolkien. Finally, why did you insist that we cover today's text? C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 1950. I think the answers to the first two riddles tell us why. 
Because we're not a troll talking. You're, you're, no, you're trashing Birmingham. You're trolling me. <laughs> or there are actually very few great works of literature that are sort of Christmassy based. Yeah. So it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. Uh, heads up, I mean, there aren't, there aren't many like trigger warnings or anything for this, but there is, you know, general violence and peril. I guess there's something that could probably be akin to child abuse. There's a lot of like secret police style, psychological warfare, some gaslighting, then wolves, Yeah. I guess. I mean, that's scary. Would you like to do some background? Yes, C.S. Lewis. Clive Staples, not Paperclips, Lewis. It's <laughs> a prefab, but I quite like it. He was a novelist, an academic, and a theologian. He was born in 1898 to an upper-middle-class family in Belfast. That's now Northern Ireland, but back then it wasn't. And uh, he seemed to spend most of his life hanging around Oxford and Cambridge, where he was a friend, a fellow initial enthusiast, J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> they were part of a group called, what, the Inklings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah. some of them died in the Great War. Yeah. So. But sadly, not these two. Um, oh, shut <laughs> up. I wanted to note here that I actually took a Tolkien course in my undergrad, and I remember the professor saying that Tolkien actually hated the Chronicles of Narnia because he thought they glorified warfare. Oh. So. That's weird, isn't it? That's pretty... Yeah, they seem pretty... Similar comparable. To, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So Lewis was raised in the Anglican Church, but he became an atheist as a teenager, and this loss of faith was compounded later by his experience in the Great War. He was converted back to Christianity in the 1930s, in part because of Tolkien. Tolkien kind of kept going like, go on, you know, like you do. Go have, an, have another wafer. Uh, <laughs> although, as an academic, he t Lewis initially specialised in mythology, mysticism, and medieval literature, he later became a kind of big theological figure and wrote all these kind of books about the problem of evil. And he also, like two other friends of the podcast, George Orwell and J.B. Priestley, did kind of radio broadcasts during the Second World War. So I think, you know, these were more about religious things than social issues. But, you know, there's a little parallel, I think. And I think I feel like there are some parallels between the text. And, mm. Yeah, there, There's a certain feel to them. I know what you mean. But yeah. could you imagine being like, Enid, shush, I'm trying to listen to my theology on a baby. Yeah, I know, you know, yeah, God, yeah. Just, uh, who's tuning in for that? It's killing morale in it, yeah. It's probably for the, the, the German spies tuning in <laughs> to, to demoralise them. His novels compound ideas of myth, allegory, religion, with more like kind of popular ideas of entertainment. So he did the satirical screw tape letters, which is written from the perspective of a demon in hell. You're a big fan of that, aren't you? I read that again in my undergrad in a philosophy module, and it, uh, I remember finding it really intriguing. I really respect Lewis, but I don't agree with anything he says. He's, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very lapsed Catholic. He was a very like gung-ho sort of, okay. was he Anglican? Yeah. yeah. But I just... Uh, you you like the screw tape letters. They're all about bureaucracy. Yeah, I should be reading it, yeah. We should be doing it now, but we're not. And then, of course, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the mo in first installment of Lewis's most famous works, The Chronicles of Narnia, 1950 to 56. This is a kind of children's fantasy set in a magical land, but they, as we all know, compound sort of mythological, ethical, and theological themes in a range of ways that we'll probably be unpicking over the course of the episode. And now, his where things get a little bit weird, a little bit wild and weird for all the fans of the podcast. Because Lewis was, had such an interest in medieval thought and religion and allegorical literature, I think it'd be useful going forward when we're discussing The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to bear in mind the historical origins of literary criticism. Our discipline, it's, it's, not, it's not universal. It had, it, <laughs> it, it, it had its roots, and those are in biblical hermeneutics. So we've got Measuring Worth Hermeneutic Edition. Mother of God. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
If you're a medieval scholar and you want to analyse the scriptures, for example, the Christmas story, there are four options. First, literal. This is just the surface content of the story. So, the Christmas story is about a sort of miraculous baby born in Bethlehem. Second, allegorical. The story is a key or a code, usually in the case of this hermeneutic tradition, to another part of the Bible. So, the Old Testament talks about the Messiah coming. <laughs> in the New Testament, we've got this magical baby being born. Then you've got a moral reading. That's your third option. The story is a guide for personal behaviour. So, you know, be nice to babies, like the innkeeper, the shepherd and the kings. Don't be horrible to babies, like King Herod. You know, <laughs> I think that's good advice, personally. Um, finally, anagogical. Yeah, everybody's favourite. It's always everybody's <laughs> favourite, isn't it? The last one. Anagogical. This is a bit like allegory, but it's more overtly metaphysical. It's about sort of like life, death and the cosmos. So, in this case, Jesus' birth and the conditions surrounding it more broadly tell us that humanity will one day be saved, redeemed, and that there are signs in the world and the cosmos latent there that will tell us as much. So, that's fun, isn't it? <laughs> so... Is this where you're taking us with measuring worth going forward? I just, whenever there's any kind of four-part system of analysis, I just assume it's got something to do with measuring worth now. I think I'd like to introduce a punitive element to the show. You love it. The story begins, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. I'm going to stop right there. Okay. because I read this book a long time ago as a child and as I was gearing up to read it this time I could not for the life of me remember their names mm -hmm. so I was trying to guess and I was like I think they're vaguely posh so what I wrote down is there were four children whose names were Bertram, Beryllium, Tomothy and Linda <laughs> Tomothy <laughs> horrible Tomothy <laughs> Anyway, it's World War II, yeah. and the kids are being sent to the country to escape the Blitz. And they all have their own personalities, kinda. Peter, boisterous, the eldest. Susan, she's kindly, parentheses, maternal. Lucy, kindly, parentheses, without being maternal. And Edmund, who is just a straight-up knob. So these kids are assigned to this old bachelor professor, um, and should we give that a little, little queer reading? Bachelor professor? We know what that means. And the professor, he's this sort of big shaggy bastard, but he and the kids take to each other at once, they all get on. It's this big sort of creepy old house that they're in, the kids are a bit out of their element. Yeah, they, they kind of end up sort of soothing themselves about thinking about how exciting it will be tomorrow to look at all of the, you know, foxes and eagles and badgers in the in the wilderness. Mm, a little bit of foreshadowing? Right, potentially, yeah. It's raining the next day, so instead they can't go out, they have to explore this kind of weird old house. Uh, they explore this house, it's, as we've been describing, this sort of large, rambling place full of strange books, paintings, objects, you know the kind. Oh, you had a red room, what was that all about? Yeah, I, <laughs> I was doing a red room like a Fifty Shades red room. Oh, I thought you meant like Jane Eyre. Oh, that would, shit, I forgot this is a literature podcast and not a filthy smut podcast. Yeah. So, one of the rooms, however, is a bit of a disappointment quote it was quite empty except for one big wardrobe the sort that has a looking glass in the door there was nothing else in the room at all except a dead blue bottle on the windowsill so that's boring isn't it that's I mean, a weird detail though the dead blue bottle i got really fixated on this where i'm like what does it mean in my my sort of lit crit brain i wanted to i wanted to do an article on the dead <laughs> blue bottle so most of the kids 
are like, whatever, who cares, let's go off and play. The youngest, Lucy, decides to stay behind. And she clearly has the instincts of a shipping magnate's widow because she's Mm. like, I want to (laughs) investigate this wardrobe and this wardrobe is full of exquisite fur coats. Quote, there was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. Mm. So she jumps straight inside, taking care to leave the door open, quote, because she knew that it is very foolish to shut oneself into any wardrobe. This will become a recurrent motif. Kids, don't close yourself in wardrobes. Public information collection, please. Brought to you by Mothers Against Wardrobes. <laughs> she starts burrowing into the fur coats like she's a nesting chinchilla. Mm. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and she keeps just going back and back and back into the fur coats in this wardrobe. And she's like, damn, this is a big wardrobe. Am I in Jaja Gabor's cold storage? What is happening? You know, so she's, she's just digging into these coats and all of a sudden she steps onto something crunchy. What is it? Mothballs? Bugs? Zsa Zsa Gabor's ex-husbands, their bones <laughs> picked clean. No, it's snow. She is in a wood all of a sudden, and the fur coats have made way for fur trees. Thanks for putting that. That was Daniel's yeah, joke. Yeah, I like that. Bit of... That was nice. On the phone, in it? Nice. Yeah, I shouldn't have brought it up. I was like so worried you weren't going to say it that I was like choking on my own <laughs> puke over here. <laughs> you lead a rich life. Yeah. She can always go back because she's left the door open. For, quote, she knew that it is very silly, a very silly thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. Brought to you by Mothers Against Wardrobes. So she decides to have an explore. It's night in the forest and she comes across a solitary lamp post. There's someone else there. <gasps> a fawn carrying an umbrella and several brown paper parcels, looking like he'd been doing his Christmas shopping. At the sight of Lucy, he drops his parcels in shock. What's the difference between a fawn and a satyr? We'll discuss this in due course, but I kind of thought it was something to do with... How penisy they are? Erections, yeah. Okay, so if... <laughs> satyrs have human feet, I think, as well, whereas fawns Ew, have Ooh, foods. no. That's, satyrs some... are just like hairy men. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I did that, like, motion. <laughs> I was just thinking this funny conjunction of mythical sort of, you know, like, mythical motifs, like magical forests and fawns with, like, banal things like lampposts and umbrellas and the wardrobe. That's there's a particular register of fantasy fiction that does that. Yeah, that sort of like magic in the most mundane thing isn't childhood magical. Yeah, yeah. do you think that's what they're going for? Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. The capacity for wonder in the mundane, I think. Yeah. I mean, I did that all the time as a kid. I could I could play pretend out of just about anything. Because all you had as a child was a small cottonless bobbin that you, but that was your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Calliope. <laughs> <laughs> So Lucy weirdly stumbled through some sort of magic portal in this, you know, winter wonderland, stumbles across a fawn. The fawn introduces himself and he starts getting kind of weird with it and asking Lucy if she's a daughter of Eve. So I guess, I guess C.S. Lewis is doing a two-footed flying kick right into our chest with the biblical parallel early on. The fawn's name is Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus is trying to explain the world they're in, and he says it's always winter in Narnia. And then he he sort of lures Lucy back to his house with the promise of sardines. This kid is so fucked up. Just I think about this shirtless motherfucker in his white pedo van handing out tinned <laughs> fish to children. Yeah. <laughs> Tumnus lives in a hole, not a damp, dirty, wet hole, nor a dry, sandy burrow. 
This is a fawn's hole. That means comfort. It's cozy and twee. He also, when they're there, he feeds her three different types of toast, which oh, yeah. really perturbed me. I love toast. What kind of sick fuck? <laughs> <laughs> they, they chat, and Tumnus tells her all about his life in the forest. He lives it up with nymphs and dryads and other fawns. Sometimes chase the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him. Sometimes Bacchus himself would turn up. And then Lucy's like, well, I better get going. I think this is going to turn into an orgy pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. What's going on with this classical stuff like Bacchus and things? Like, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because, like, in The Hobbit or whatever, it's just tween Middle Englanderism mixed with, like, Wagner, with Norse myth. But here we have that and classical antiquity and the Bible. There's a lot going on. Yeah, this is conceptually messy. Yeah. I didn't quite know what to make of it, but maybe, maybe we'll discuss that yeah, at the down end. Down the line, yeah. So... Lucy says, yeah, I gotta go, and Mr. Tumnus starts crying, <laughs> and it's real weird, and she's like, grow up here, mate, you're an adult. <laughs> um, and he says he's crying because he's basically a mafia goon. He's a paid kidnapper for somebody called the White Witch. She rules Narnia, and she has cast a spell to make it always winter, but never Christmas. And so he's under instructions, if he ever sees a human child, to lure it to his home, lull it to sleep, and, then, yeah. and then hand it over to the White Witch. Lucy sort of talks her way out of the saw basement, and Mr. Tumnus swears he won't kidnap anyone else. And he'll walk her back to the wardrobe. But they'll have to be really quick and quiet because the woods are full of the White Witch's spies. And if she finds out, she'll do some, like, real David Cronenberg body horror shit on Mr. Tumnus. Or maybe she'll just turn him into one of her famous stone statues. So he walks Lucy back and he asks, Oh, can I keep your handkerchief to remember you by? And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I really hope nobody narks on you. And then she busts back through the wardrobe into her own time and space. So Lucy's like, oh, it's all right, I'm back. And the other kids are like, sure, yeah, whatever. Don't, don't really give a shit. Uh, <laughs> turns out, although she spent hours in Narnia, back on the other side of the wardrobe door, no time has passed at all. So Lucy tries to explain herself. Susan and Peter are a bit like, hmm, I'm, I'm worried older sibling. You know, that kind of annoying, patronizing way that older siblings are. Edmund, meanwhile, calls her Batty. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty harsh terms. <laughs> God, um, we're not blunting our swords today, are we? Yeah, <laughs> no. Lucy shows them the wardrobe interior. Come uh, with me, guys, I gotta, yeah. I gotta show you. Like, come on, and, but it's just an ordinary wardrobe. Yeah, Peter's like, jolly good hoax, Lou. And then she bursts into tears, you know. The wardrobe causes a bit of a rift between the siblings for the next few days, and we get this bit about their respective characters. Um, quote, Lucy was a very truthful girl and she knew that she was really in the right and she could not bring herself to say this. The others who thought she was telling a lie, and a silly lie too, made her very unhappy. The two elder ones did this without meaning to do it, but Edmund could be spiteful and on this occasion he was spiteful. He sneered and jeered at Lucy and kept on asking her if she'd found any other new countries in other cupboards all over the house. It's quite funny, I think. Yeah. That just feels like you're due as a slightly older brother. Oh, yeah. That's uh, so gentle. They really, I kind of think, at least in this first bit, they're like, Edmund was a right little puke. And I was like, or he's just being a very standard older brother. Yeah, no, I know. They're, they're too harsh on the kid. So the kids all go and play hide and seek. And Lucy goes back to hide in the wardrobe. Quote, she did not shut it properly because she knew that it's very silly to shut oneself into a wardrobe, even if it's not a magic one. Brought to you by Mothers Against Wardrobes. <laughs> <laughs> Soon, you know, just remember that. Soon after, Edmund follows her in, shutting the door. 
forgetting what a very foolish thing is to <laughs> do. So, you know, I don't know what that tells us. So it's magic again. And he's in Narnia this time. Turns out Lucy was right. He can't find her and assumes she's off sulking just like a girl, he says. Someone new turns up on a sledge driven by a dwarf and drawn by two reindeer. It was, quote, a great lady, taller than any woman that Edmund had ever seen. She was also covered in white fur up to her throat, and held a long, straight golden wand in her right hand, and wore a golden crown on her head. Her face was white, not merely pale, but white, like snow or paper or icing sugar, except for a very red mouth. <gasps> She's like, hello, I'm the Queen of Narnia. I'm thinking, what is going on with this obsession with shutting wardrobe doors? Uh, let's get onto that first. And I think the scriptural interpretive methods tell us that there's more to this than meets the eye. So, if you want to discuss the shutting of a wardrobe door in biblical hermeneutic terms, there are four <laughs> options. That's right, Daniel. Give the people what they want. Yeah, literal. It's very dangerous to shut yourself in a wardrobe. You might get trapped. Allegorical. It represents Jesus' closed tomb. <laughs> And by extension, the loss of hope following Good Friday. <laughs> Three, moral. Closing a wardrobe door is a bit like crossing the Rubicon, isn't it? You know, it smacks of arrogance. <laughs> Have the humility and foresight to be able to, you know, leave a kind of an escape route for your actions, to be able to go back, to be able to accept you're wrong. Finally, anagogical, everybody's favourite. An act of closing one's spirit. You know, that's what the wardrobe, closing the wardrobe door is. It's an act of refusing to let goodness in. That's why Edmund closed the wardrobe door, while Lucy didn't. He is a prick. <laughs> right, so you're you're really committed to this uh, hermeneutics. I think I'm getting stuff out of it. Like, you could write a pretty good GCSE essay just by doing this, but not saying that it's biblical hermeneutics. Okay, everyone, save me from my shelf. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Can I talk to you over here, please? <laughs> so, hermeneutics aside... Edmund's there encountering this, you know, sort of bad bitch on her sleigh. And she goes, who's this jabroni? And she keeps asking Edmund what he is. So it comes out that Edmund is a, quote, son of Adam. And, quote, I see you are an idiot, whatever else you may be. Damn, she is roasting his tiny ass. Yeah. So she basically starts villain monologuing here, um, you know, telling him pretty openly what she's about to do. Like, I will kill you if I need to. And he just doesn't really seem to twig. God, if only the witch had a tell. <laughs> and she, is, she decides, like, right, let's turn on the charm. So she tells Edmund, go on, jump into my sleigh. And she gives him a foaming goblet of hot mystery drink. And when asked what he would like to eat, he says... Turkish delight, which is not really something we have in the States. Is it not? No, I, I only ever had it here. Oh, right. I was so confused as a child what Turkish delight could even be. Well, have I got a surprise for you. What's here in my sack? Do you actually? In my gift sack. Did you actually? <laughs> Some Turkish delight for all the girls and boys. Just the one girl and the one boy, let's be honest. Yep. Just trying to get in this fucker. That's nice of you, thank you. Oh, nobody like oh Jesus, this powdered sugar. Nobody likes Turkish delight, do they? I actually really like Great. it. Well, knock yourself out. Here it I is, everybody. Will. Yeah, as a kid, I was just like, what? What is this? Is it some sort of like life-affirming pate? What is Turkish delight? What the <laughs> hell? It is odd, isn't it? Um, yeah. 
I mean, it's good. It's not worth alienating my entire family for. She conjures up several pounds of the stuff as well. Yeah, he eats several pounds of it. And I'm like, are, are you like Garfield with a lasagna? Yeah, it's just... I'm thinking that. He's gonna, you're going to kill yourself. And he's also a complete little piglet who talks with his mouth full. And no, I've just... naughty. I've set my heart against him in enmity. Oh, really? I'm, yeah. It's not like... C.S. Lewis wasn't trying to get us to do that, but yeah. No, no, the other stuff I can forgive. I cannot forgive somebody talking with their mouth full. Okay. Um, okay, so yes, yeah, so she gives him a bunch of candy. This is just stranger danger writ large. <laughs> I also think this would be a great Halloween costume and candy choice for any adult who's comfortable with getting arrested. <laughs> What's Fawn offering sardines good, which offering took us to like bad, like... I've had six of one and half a dozen of the other. Well, but, you know, it is it is the war and candy is... And it's, first of all, it's Turkish, so it's a bit Johnny Foreigner. Yeah. But also, you know, it's, it's a bit decadent. Sardines, good. You need your protein. So we soon find out that the Turkish delight is basically laced with meth. So the eater will sort of never be satisfied. It's this enchanted candy and he could just eat it until he died. So get him hooked young. That's what I say. The queen interviews him. He's like... Oh, yeah, I've got loads of brothers and sisters, and, you know, that's him eating the thing. Uh, he also talks about the fawn, you know, everything. He reveals yeah. it all. Edmund, you f***ing grass. Yeah, he's gross. He finishes the Turkish delight, and the queen's like, oh, yeah, I'll give you more, and I'll make you king of Narnia to boot <laughs> if you bring your siblings to my castle. And then she's like, oh, by the way, don't believe anything your sister's fawn friend may have told her about me. See ya! And then <laughs> she leaves Edmund alone. Who soon after runs into Lucy, who's been with Tomnus. I guess they're doing their weekly girly brunch. Yeah. Catching yeah. up. Boozy brunch. No. Bottomless mimosas. He's already not wearing bottoms. <laughs> Tomnus was telling her all about the evil white witch who has taken over Narnia and who sounds suspiciously like the same person as the Queen of Narnia about whom Edmund reveals nothing. Lucy's pleased that now her experience in the wardrobe can be confirmed, but Edmund's annoyed because he's going to have to admit, quote, that Lucy had been right before all the others, and they would also, no doubt, take the anti-witch side. You're presented with a magical world of wonders, and this is the petty bullshit you're caught up on. There you go. I think, we, yeah, we've got to contrast Edmund's unwillingness to admit wrongdoing to Tumnus, who is like, you know, he cracks, he apologizes immediately. The message is, People, you gotta leave open that wardrobe door in your heart. Be like Tomless, do not be like Edmund. So Lucy and Edmund, fresh from their adventure, they tumble back through the, the wardrobe door. And Lucy's really excited to have Narnia confirmed to Peter and Susan. And she's like, maybe they'll do that thing where they lift me up over their heads like the Stanley Cup and they'll say hurrah. <laughs> Except Edmund turns into even more of a little shit and when they encounter their older siblings, he's like, oh yeah, Lucy and I were just playing made up Narnia. And Lucy is humiliated. She runs off crying. And Peter reads Edmund the riot act. The old house is a popular tourist hotspot. The kids keep getting into trouble for getting in the way of the housekeeper's tours. That housekeeper's like, oh, you bleeders. I don't know. <laughs> you bleeders. You, you little bleeders. <laughs> little hemophiliacs. Yeah. One day, all four of them hear a tour coming. This is such a stupid conceit, isn't it? So Peter's like, sharp's the word, kids. Put, you know, pip, pip. Uh, and they run off, ultimately having to hide in the wardrobe. All four of them bundled inside it and sat there, panting in the dark. Peter held the door closed, but did not shut it, for of course he remembered, as every sensible person does, that you should never shut yourself up in a wardrobe. Brought to you by Mothers Against Wardrobes. I'm uh, sorry, they're loading Chekhov's wardrobe door. 
but nothing ever happens. They never get trapped in the wardrobe. You can travel to Narnia whether or not you close it, the wardrobe door. C.S. Lewis doesn't want real children to read this and copy them. They all get in the wardrobe. Peter's like, by Jove, it's trees all around. And this wet stuff, it's snow. <laughs> Why, I do believe we've gone into Lucy's wood after all. <laughs> uh, so there you go. They're there. They're all the kids are in Narnia now. Hooray. Now the adventure can finally take off. So Susan, who's kind of another little Zsa Zsa Gabor type, she's like, we should take some of these furs with us before we go traipsing around the wood. So Zsa Zsa Gabor meets Samuel de Champlain. You've just described me. <laughs> Edmund, he is supposed to be like, oh shoot, I can't let them know that I was actually here before. I need to, I need to, you know, pretend like this is all new to me too, or they'll catch me in my lie. He instantly forgets, and he starts backseat driving them toward the lamppost. And Peter turns and he's like, so when you said you and Lucy were only playing pretend, you were lying. You you have been here before. Piece of shit. And Peter calls him of all the poisonous little beasts. Nice. Like a serpent in a cold Eden? Is that... Very good, yeah. Edmund, hoisted by his own petard, vows revenge. So they head over to Mr. Tumnus's place, but it's like the KGB got there before them. (laughs) Everything is smashed up, and there's a note saying that Mr. Tumnus has been accused of high treason against the Queen for fraternizing with humans. And then they follow a robin, a a sentient robin, who seemingly wants to lead them somewhere and is trying to be like, Oi, over here. Now what? The kids, they see a beaver. It's a good beaver, not a bad one. How do you know? Um, no, we're getting a little eugenics here, a little phrenology. It looks nice. It's yeah, got the right well, features. Don't worry, I've got things to say on that. <laughs> uh, and it can talk as well, so maybe that's how you can work out it's good, because it says nice things. Animals who talk in a Christian allegory... I just picture Lewis writing this and going, your move, Darwin. <laughs> the, the beaver somehow seems to already be aware of the kid's existence and is like, are you the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve? Turns out he's a friend of Thomas and he's part of the resistance. The children ask how they know how he, the beaver, can be trusted. And he pulls out the handkerchief that Lucy had given to Mr. Tumnus. And I'm like, friend, no, all this proves is that he's had some sort of probable interaction with Mr. Tumnus. He could have taken that off of Tumnus's lifeless body after beating him to death with a sack of batteries. Uh, and the beaver's like, but you do need to come with me for your safety. The beaver also adds, they say Aslan is on the move. And then we get this strange bit. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. <laughs> Surely he always feels like that. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I like that, you know, Aslan is this kind of like raw shark test that just hearing it <laughs> evinces your moral and kind of psychological <laughs> state. So the beaver invites them all back to his lodge. They follow suit. Edwin keeps having horrible ideas about what he'll do when he becomes king i am become death destroyer of worlds exactly he is like that <laughs> also he's kind of like working out the bearings and seeing that he knows where the white witch lives that's kind of little you know thing to worth bearing in mind oh god the call is coming from inside the house <laughs> exactly the lodge the beaver has a beaver wife who doesn't have a name she's just mrs beaver well he doesn't really have a name either i know but that drives me a little bit nuts um, aslan gets a name tumnus gets a name yeah I think their name is Beaver. <laughs> um, 
She has a sewing machine who also doesn't have a name. Uh, <laughs> but I was just more interested in the idea that, of this kind of semi-industrialized yeah, like it, thing. I want to know if this is like a singer patent that has made its way through yeah, the well, realm. Exactly. Yeah. Where are they getting these commodities from? Via the wardrobe? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Or just like do Narnia creatures independently invent their own sewing machines? You know, the boys, they head out to catch a fish. The girls, meanwhile, stay behind with Mrs. Beaver setting the table in, the, you know, like girls' jobs. <sighs> yeah. Then they all have a hearty meal with lashings of hot tea and get chatting. Why, why do they do this in fantasy novels as well, the obsession with food? What is that? Because um, you get this, uh, you got this somewhat with Lord of the Rings. You definitely get this with Redwall. This is such a trope of the fantasy. It's a very bougie yeah sort of I think it's simultaneously bougie but also like visceral that it's kind of it's a shortcut into making everything else around it seem believable like they were in a magical castle and it had non-Euclidean geometry and but they do have toast but then they ate a piece of toast and the toast was lovely and buttery and you're kind of like wow there were such good visceral descriptions in this Cthulhu the butter but I I wondered if maybe all of that fantasy it that does this now i wonder if they're getting the playbook from tolkien and lewis that's another thing from the history this, of the genre yeah yeah from this period where i mean obviously we're in war we're yeah. in rationing right so we're having our you know fish and probably more toast in potatoes the, in, are involved i believe oh 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 i guess so we've colonized the americas <laughs> yeah the Colombian exchange yeah and chat then gets properly to aslan who is sort of a sort of this absentee king he's a he's a bit like richard the lionheart Wink. Hmm. Um, and he, he rules Narnia, but he's very seldom here. And it's never explained exactly what the relationship between Aslan and this white witch is. Suffice to say, they've got kind of this East Coast, West Coast, Biggie Tupac thing going on. <laughs> anyway, the beavers are convinced that Aslan is going to sort out this white witch, as is told in a little rhyming proverb, quote, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. Uh, mm. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So despite this, dumbass Lucy is like, is he a man? And the beavers clarify, no dummy, he's a lion. They also do mention that the, the witch has all those statues in her castle, doesn't she? Don't they? Right at the beginning. That the witch is like the dictator, that she's got all these like anyone she mistreats she turns to stone yeah so mr beaver i'm not really sure if he's some sort of like spy handler but he says he's already arranged a meeting between aslan and the kids mm-hmm. at the stone table the children are about to fulfill a prophecy so we get another little poem quote when adam's flesh and adam's bone sit at care paravel in throne the evil times will be over and done done mm-hmm. um, uh, Paravel is the castle isn't it in Narnia like the sort of capital city Aslan the lion how do we read him <laughs> well there are four ways if you're a biblical hermit <laughs> if you're Hugh of St. Victor or one of them lot you know we've all got posters of in our bedroom <laughs> so Aslan literally he's a magical lion not really much more to say than, than that is there yes there is allegorical he's Christ moral the moral reading He's a model of virtuous power and an object of deference. You better learn to love serving that guy. You know, you better... (laughs) There's something fascist going on there, I think. Finally, anagogical. He's a symbol of imminent cosmic redemption. Don't mind Daniel, everyone. He just wasn't brought up right. Yeah. (laughs) It's like weird uncut Christmas, isn't it? Always going on about the anagogical. (laughs) 
now. What about the witch with her kind of weird garden of uh, citizens of Narnia who've been turned to stone? Isn't she a human? No. She's descended from Adam's first wife, the demon goddess Lilith. And she's also one of the jinn. And she's also descended from giants. So I kind of wondered if there was some sort of like queer reading about this unholy thruple that produced the... The, the evil queen, the evil witch. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Shooting from the hip like this. Pew, yeah. pew. No, no, the beaver says, there isn't a drop of real human blood in the witch. The, the kids and beavers all agree that animals and humans may be good or bad, but anything that resembles a human but isn't, so like a witch or a dwarf, is definitely evil. Here's what the beaver says. When you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. <laughs> what the f***? I like, don't this, know. This, is, this is the weirdest line in the whole text. And it's also, I think it's probably my favourite bit in the whole text, despite being really disturbing. You feel like Mr. Beaver has a hell of a backstory. Like, yeah. I want to know what... Baby, what hurt you? Well, it's also, like, really problematic, doesn't it? Like, it makes me think of pre-Adamism, you know, that sort of mm. 18th century idea that... There were people before Adam and Eve that were sort of like savage people and that sort of all the, you know, all of those groups of people we don't like are descended from the pre-Adamites. And all the people we do like, you know, the whiteies, are descended from Adam and Eve. So it makes me think of racism. Also that idea of going to be human and isn't yet. If you kill everything that's going to be human and isn't yet, when are you going to get any humans? That seems like a shame. Maybe it's like an anti-evolution thing or something, I don't know. But that's the problem with fantasy fiction in general, isn't it? All that stuff like the races and the orcs Mm -hmm. and the goblins and, you know... It, it, it plays with essentialisms in a way that yeah. can... It's following in a long line of, like, racist tradition. Even if you're like, well, it's not talking about real racism. I'm like, no, but this is how people do talk yeah. about or have talked about. <laughs> yeah, so, so after our little eugenics yeah, talk... The, yeah, the, Mr. Beaver's put away his calipers. <laughs> uh, where's Edmund? He's bolted. <gasps> Everyone now realises that he was on the side of the White Witch this whole time. And Mr. Beaver adds, I didn't like to mention it before, he being your brother and all, but the moment I set eyes on that brother of yours, I said to myself, treacherous. His eyes gave off the air of one bewitched. Then why didn't you say anything, asshole? You could have found a way to separate the kids, or you could have kept a closer eye on Edmund. I shot him just on sight, <laughs> shoot him in the hip. No, but, but you had to lead him right to your secret house? Fuck's sake. This was the bit that I liked the most. This turns into a little bit of a fun spycraft novel for a minute when they try to figure out exactly when Edmund left, how much he heard. The most they can figure out is Edmund probably heard that Aslan's back in town, but did he hear if they're going to meet Aslan at the stone table or not? Mm. We're not sure. Um, And they're like, so, you know, the witch is either going to nab us at the beaver's house within the hour or she's going to try to intercept us before we get to Aslan. We got to go now, Mm. which I really liked. Yeah, that's a good bit, yeah. So we cut to Edmund, who has sat through this lovely dinner fixating on imaginary slights and obsessing about Turkish delight. And he slipped out the door once they started talking about meeting Aslan at the stone table. And he gets all very fake news about the witch <laughs> being evil. In fairness, he's he's not so much a boy anymore as he is a Turkish delight robot set on search and destroy mode. And he is he has this bit of a journey trying to get to the witch's castle in winter at night. And when he finally makes it, he, he looks at her big evil castle and he has kind of a Maria, I have confidence outside the Trap family mansion moment <laughs> where he's like, oh shit, what have I gotten myself into? So we do get a bit of a gothic fiction moment with Edmund stumbling around her oppressive garden and then he freezes 
there's a lion there crouched and ready to strike. And after this long, tense moment, he realizes the lion is just a statue. And it's probably that dumb Aslan everyone thinks is so great. So Edmund, who is just a little shit, he takes a pencil out of his pocket. He presently did something very silly. <laughs> <laughs> he draws a mustache and glasses on the lion statue. Oh, no. That's like when those uh, Spanish women try and repaint the interiors <laughs> of churches, isn't it? There's the allegory reading. I was just like, what is the stone statue made out of? Does the witch get to pick? what kind of stone i think it reflects your personality oh what kind of stone would you be lime uh because i love the limelight no because you're porous yeah that's true <laughs> uh, what about you i'd be marble because i'm also porous but at least i look good all right people are trying to find the angel in you maybe I am shorter than you. I'm a lot closer to hell. That's why I act like this. I'm sorry. Okay. This book is making me silly. It's making me theologically silly. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Edmund makes his way through this progressively creepy garden that he realizes is just absolutely full of stone statues. It's not just the lion. And he finally tries to step over at this big statue of a wolf, which turns out to be a real live fucking wolf. Who Boy, is... you cried stone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this wolf turns out to be the head of the queen's secret police. And he's like, come with me. And as soon as Edmund gets to her throne room, he just spills everything. So the kids are back at that damn lodge. Damn slash lo lodge. Um, it's a joke. Uh, it's a pun. <laughs> uh, the, the kids are I kind of fucked up as well. Um... <laughs> The kids and beavers are preparing to go on the run. They're packing loads of ham. Yeah, and Mrs. Beaver is the one who comically holds them up, you know. Ladies always take forever to leave the house. Fellas, am I right? Yeah. You know, it's that sort of thing. And she just spends ages packing up food for everyone. And I strongly believe they should have left her candy ass behind. And I will die on this hill. She's not cut out to be married to Mr. Beaver. Well, some sort of spy master. It's sort of weird to think of a beaver eating ham. <laughs> That's what I was more focusing on, but... Because beavers are an endless source of fascination, aren't they, everyone? If you had a pet beaver, would you name him Clint Eatswood? Very good. Yeah, maybe I would now. So, they scramble through the woods. This goes on for a while. I'm not going to elaborate. They eventually find a little burrow. Whatever is this, said Peter's voice, sounding tired and pale in the darkness. I hope you know what I mean by a voice sounding pale. Oh, no, right, right. I like that little... That's a great like, bit. Yeah, telling us how to read texts. Uh, it's a special beaver's hideout. It's a beaver safe house. They camp there for the night, but this hole doesn't mean comfort. It's a damp, dirty, wet hole. And let's not forget, Mrs. Beaver liquors all the kids up to get them to sleep, which, friend, is how hypothermia happens. I don't think much of her parenting skills. I said it. I said it. Well, where are the beaver children? <gasps> oh my god, they're dead. The cold, cold ground. <laughs> Boozed up. <laughs> So the next morning, you know, they wake up, they're all sore after sleeping on this horrible, like, I'm very sore. cave floor, um, and they hear sleigh bells and they panic. It's the white witch. Mr. Beaver, in this really tense moment, he sneaks out to get a look at the witch. He's like, okay, I gotta, you know, get our bearings and see where she's headed. And then he's like, oh, kids, it's okay, actually, come out. Her power is crumbling already. You know how she made it winter forever, but never Christmas? Well, and he produces motherfucking Santa Claus, which is the second cameo of the season. Great. This made me furious. This is so tacky. I hated this bit. A lot of pedophiles in this series. A lot of Santa. A lot of Santas. I'm not you do the math. Well, I'm, not, I'm not saying do the math, but I'm, you do the dialectic. <laughs> These are two sides of the same coin, man. 
<laughs> read the quote because it's a good quote. So when they see Santa, we get this weird sort of uh, again, you know, oh the majesty, you know, I can't bear it. On the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries. Everyone knew him because though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you really see them in Narnia, it's rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't quite find it like that. He was so big, so glad, and so real, that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. It's that sort of like ultra right-wing sense of majesty. I Yeah, just the, this idea that some people are inherently more majestic, yeah. yes. Anyway. Which I suppose... If it's Father Christmas. Well, but I suppose it is true. Some people are naturally more magnetic. Like me. Charis- yeah. Oh, was that a joke? Was that a joke in the wild? I didn't recognize it at first. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> okay. Back to Santa and what he gets up to. Santa gives the children their presents, and he gives them... What do you, what do you think he gives them? Nice, wholesome things, like a toy train or something. He gives them hardcore weapons. All right. So Peter gets a sword and a shield, because he's a boy, and, you know, find the phallus. Susan. Shield. It's not um, meant to look like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see a doctor, do I? I cannot tell you again. Susan gets a bow and arrow and an ivory horn, but Santa says, Hey, now, I don't intend you to go into battle with these, though. You're a girl. You can only use the bow and arrow in a moment of supreme importance because the bow and arrow doesn't miss. Sidebar, does she ever use the bow and arrow? Don't remember. I th- she uses the horn. I don't think she- I can't remember if she uses it. I just think this is stupid because you're giving somebody a bow and arrow set and the arrows never miss. Sounds like Susan would be fucking dope in battle, you fool. Let her fight. Yeah. Santa then gives Lucy, the six-year-old, a glass bottle with a magical healing potion. That's pretty good. I, I wrote plus 10 to healing. And a small dagger, mm. plus two to melee. Edmund is going to be so pissed off he missed this. Yeah, the, the special bazooka. <laughs> so like, oh, 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 put a, I'll put the bazooka back in the, the sack because Sidman's not here. <laughs> then Santa cries, Merry Christmas, long live the true king, and drives off. Okay, here's here's my issue. Why does he recognize a king's authority? Surely Santa is above such things, unless this is... Well, is this the equivalent to, say, papal authority, recognizing one king over a usurper? Is Santa a subject or peer of Aslan? That's my question. Subject or peer? Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. The witch and her dwarf servant aren't being very nice. There's no Turkish delight or anything. Yeah, he's a bit like, am I still on track to be made king of Narnia? And honestly, he is so dense that light bends around him. (laughs) There we go. There's a joke for your physicist friend. The witch, the dwarf, and Edmund set out on the sledge to confront the kids, Beavers and Aslan. And en route, they see a merry party with lots of cute woodland animals and mythical creatures having Christmas dinner. Yay! There's little squirrels and things, it's cute. She's like, what's going on here? They're like, Father Christmas has been. And she's like, I'm not happy about that. Turns them all to stone. She's working on Christmas, though. I mean, it's true what they say. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. It seemed so pitiful to think of all those little stone figures sitting there, all the silent days and dark nights, year after year, till the moss grew on them, and at last even their faces crumbled away. 
So the sledge sledges off, but soon it starts to struggle. It's a Tesla. Yeah. Um, the snow is melting. They can hear streams chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. They eventually resolve to abandon the sledge, and they have to just walk through the sludge. Sledge to sludge. <laughs> Flowers are blooming, trees are re-leafening, and the sunlight is poking through everywhere. The White Witch is like, I smell a lion on the loose, and his name is Asshole. Also, (laughs) man, Winter really got out of here like it owed somebody money. Yeah. It's gone. So the other group with Susan, Lucy, Peter, and the Beavers, they're also walking, making their way to the stone table. And they get there, and there's some real ur-pagan ritual druid shit. It's covered in this unknown language. They got their wingding font out, you mm. know. It's like a megalith, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So Aslan has set up his war tent, and he's gathering animals for an upcoming battle. Uh, and he's he's got this whole group of mythical creatures like centaurs and shit. You know, it's just all these people coming out of the woodwork. Hey, read this. Nymphs, centaurs, a unicorn, a bull with the head of a man, and a pelican, and an eagle, <laughs> and a great dog. <laughs> What is a pelican doing here? What about a big dog? A big dog, I can understand more than a pelican. What the fuck is a pelican going to do in battle? Maybe like bring ammo. A a dog could do that. Fly ammo in its bill. But a dog could do that much more easily. Like a St. Bernard? Don't. Bring in. What, in this hot weather? That St. Bernard's going to struggle. Bring in. Bring in. You call it a St. Bernard. Bernard? Well, leave the pelican alone. Okay. No, actually. No. Shan't. That pelican is dead to me. <laughs> so the the kids first lay their eyes on Aslan, who is described as, quote, good and terrible at the same time. Aslan asks where the fourth child is, and they have to admit that Edmund has betrayed them. Aslan then sends the girls away to prepare a feast. Hey. And these children are going to be faz little piglets. Doing a lot of walking. Don't care. He takes Peter away to look at the castle where he will one day be king. And I was like, wait, aren't you king, though? This is what threw me. Emperor Francis of Austria, and then the kids are like Leopold of Belgium or something like that. Sure. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's serving Mufasa, everything the light touches is yours, Simba, you know, all that sort of crap. Then, as they're doing their father-son bonding experience... They hear Susan's horn. The White Witch's wolves are attacking. And Aslan's like, you know, I could probably handle this, but Peter really needs to have his first blood. <laughs> so he sends the children into battle against sentient dire wolves as big as bears. And I just think Aslan's a complete asshat. The girls, of course, run and hide or climb trees. All good girls do. Susan, who has her bow and arrow that cannot miss, is of no fucking use, and she basically faints in a tree. She's just filing her nails on the arrow, isn't she? <laughs> well, thank God Peter's there with his giant sword, you know, find the phallus, to save the day, which he does pretty easily. You, you had a quotation to read here. Yeah, it gets quite intense, doesn't it? So they fight a bit, and then Peter manages to duck down and plunge his sword as hard as he could between the brute's forelegs into its heart. Then came a horrible, confused moment, like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. A moment later, he found that the monster lay dead, and he had drawn his sword out of it, which is quite intense, isn't it, I think? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, this is a kid's bop version of the Revenant. So Aslan sends the centaurs off to follow one of the retreating wolves so they know where the queen is hiding. And then he knights Peter as Sir Peter Wolfsbane. And I'm like, you do one thing in middle school and the nickname sticks with you for your entire <laughs> life. Meanwhile, the witch is planning on mustering all her lot. Yeah, Aslan's got a lot. The witch has got a lot too. Giants and werewolves, and the spirits of those trees who are on our side. Ghouls, boggles, don't know what that is, ogres, minotaurs, cruels, hey. hags, spectres, and the people of the toadstools. This is Princess Peach's gritty backstory I never knew I never wanted. Yeah. I just was interested that Aslan had bulls with men's heads, so that's a lamassu, isn't it, in the Babylonian myth? And then the witch has minotaurs, men with bulls' heads. So what's going on there? But Bacchus shows up, and there's also a font. So, like, what's the yeah the Greek versus? Well, there's the... a Greek Babylonian syncretism thing. But I was just thinking, also, is it Lamassu good, Minotaur bad? So she prepares to murder Edmund. There's like yeah, there's a bit where she has sharpening the knife on the whetstone, and it's really awful. And she has Edmund tied up against a tree, and she's <laughs> gonna... more like more Turkish delight now. Please. <laughs> uh, a rescue party comes and saves him. Hooray! So the next day, the children awake in Aslan's war pavilion and discover that Edmund has been rescued, and he's out there having a literal come to Jesus with Aslan. Aslan's <laughs> uh, Jesus. No, an allegorical come to Jesus with Aslan. <laughs> Aslan tells the other children that the past is past now, and they're all just going to have to get along. Parenting! So easy! Then there's some negotiation about the witch being granted safe passage for a parlay with Aslan. In a very unbelievable and clunky bit, the witch asks if Aslan has forgotten the deep magic. <laughs> and Aslan says, quote, Let us say I've forgotten it. Tell us of this deep magic. And I'm like, there are more graceful ways to introduce exposition. Come on! Well, I think that he was trying to sound out how much she knew. So it turns out that rooted in Narnia since the beginning of time is the rule that every traitor must be forfeit to the white witch or else Narnia will, like, disintegrate like sugar in the rain or something. And since Edmund is a traitor, she has the right to do with him as she likes. So Aslan and the witch work something out where she she's like, okay, I'll, I'll relinquish my right to shank Edmund in exchange for something. Who knows what the deal was about? The goodies all decamp from the stone table, and Aslan, you know, en route, coaches Peter in managing the upcoming inevitable battle. And Peter's like, well, surely you'll be there, old, old sport. And Aslan's like, hmm, I can't can't give you any promise of that. Sorry. I like that Peter's like, I'm a general now. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, involve the girls in this. You're telling Peter your battle plans. You're my general. He's, what, a 13-year-old boy? silly female brains couldn't comprehend it. And what happens when Peter gets killed in the first 15 seconds of battle and nobody knows what's happening? Involve the girls. No, they wouldn't understand it. It's too complex. <laughs> Send the deer there. Send the centaurs here. You know, it's, it's really hard. Send stuff. the what? Where? You're right. Sorry, yeah, it's too... Yeah, I can't... Exactly, yeah. Okay, night falls and everyone's feeling low and dreadful. Lucy and Susan decide to go out for a bit of a wonder and they find Aslan walking away from the camp and then you follow him. He's like, yeah, that's fine. But maybe keep back. You know, they're heading back to the stone table and they eventually reach it and the witch and all her aforementioned cronies are there. Uh, having some kind of black mass. Oh yeah, this is a um, this is an eyes wide shut orgy waiting yeah, to happen. Yeah, if not, just happening. <laughs> uh, and in, some of the people there include creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown ups would probably not let you read this book. I am telling you, this is orgy. 
Lucian and Susan are hiding out, but Aslan approaches and all the creatures start abusing him. They cut his mane, they treat him like a cat, don't they? The witch has him muzzled and they tie him to the stone table. She gets out a knife of a strange and evil shape and prepares to kill Aslan, but not before announcing, Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? You have given me Narnia forever, and you have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And she kills him. I think she should have defeated Aslan in the marketplace of ideas. I just wondered, is the witch reneging on her and Aslan's deal by planning on killing Edmund anyway? Does that make her a traitor? Does she need to kill herself? Ooh. Some kind of paradox circle joke here, I think. <laughs> so the witch and her cronies depart. Susan and Lucy, who have been watching this, hiding in the bushes, they go to Aslan's body, they cry over him, they try to untie him, but the cords are too tight. Eventually, some of, like, Cinderella's mice or whatever come along and gnaw through the ropes. As the sun rises, the girls go for a sad walk until they hear a giant cracking sound. The stone table is broken in two. Aslan is gone from the table. The girls turn around and they see Aslan standing there. He's back with his mane bigger and better than ever. Ta-da! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doing his three-day Jesus thing in record time, but how is it possible? Well, the witch knew about deep magic. Oh, this is so fucking stupid. But Aslan knew deeper magic. Hey. It's all very legalese, academic, fine print. Uh, I guess the table with its magic writing had some footnotes she didn't read or something. But basically, if a willing sacrifice who hasn't betrayed anyone agrees to get sacrificed, it would break the magic or some such shit. I was like, but surely Aslan is breaking the witch's oh. confidence. He's betraying her, thinking this is a genuine bar. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, bad faith. It's it's there's well, yeah. He didn't know. Of course he knew. Also. I don't know why Lucy didn't give Aslan her magical healing potion. She could have last crusaded this bitch. He dead. He's already dead. So then the girls and Aslan frolic on the ground, and Aslan leaps a lot, and they all collapse in a happy heap. Like, guys, shouldn't you maybe be getting back to people? Well, they people? do, don't they? Uh, but I'm like, yeah, do, do we have time for this? Do we have time for happy I hijinks? So. I think so. Yeah. Little resurrected. So. I mean, if it comes down to saving other people's lives got children out there fighting battles um they eventually reach the witch's castle the gates are closed aslan's like screw that and he just jumps right over aslan's running around the yard breathing on the statues which are soon enough returning back to life my question is did the light the stone lion that edmund drew on did it have a mustache did it wake up with a mustache we never we never find out that's a great point though Mr. Thomas is there too, and he gets saved. Hooray! Meanwhile, one of the few good giants in Narnia is there, and he's, you know, he's among the number of creatures that Aslan rescued. He's called Rumblebuffin. No, he is not. Yes, he is called Rumblebuffin. No, I'm just, I'm arguing against Lewis as much as I'm arguing against you. Well, I don't know what to tell you. He's called Rumblebuffin. No. And he's like, Duh, I can smash down them walls for you. Uh, and does it. 
and then he mops his sweaty brow with Lucy, and then they all head <laughs> off to fight the witch. That's a fun bit, isn't it? Eventually, so they're all heading off, all of these recently liberated animals. No time for playing for them. They eventually hear the sound of shouts and shrieks and the clashing of metal against metal. Peter and Edmund and the rest are all fighting it out against the witch's horrible creatures. Did anyone ever give Edmund a weapon? Yeah, or? Was bazooka. I don't know. <laughs> They arrive just in the nick of time because it looks like the goodies are losing. Oh no! Lots of fighting, and eventually Aslan finds the witch, knocks her down. Yeah, he cuts Peter's big battle scene real short. Just kill the general. <laughs> well, the Aslan just jumps on the witch like furry death from above, and they roll over and over and over, and maybe they kiss a little what bit on the way. That's what the kids are saying. Uh, what's that lion doing? <laughs> And then, you know, he kills her and all the animals stamp her to death. Hooray. That's very sweet, isn't it? That bit. So, the battle's been won and Peter announces that Edmund saved the day, actually. He's not all bad. By going for the witch's wand, thereby stopping her from turning everyone to stone. But now he's seriously wounded. Oh no. Fortunately, Lucy's got a magic potion from Father Christmas to hand and saves him. Hooray again. And when he's, like, recovered, he's his old real self again. No longer a pr- which was apparently caused by going to that horrid school. Is this the same boarding school as Turn of the Screw? Where, like, dark things are happening yeah. to all the boys? You know, or the confusions of young toddlers, maybe. <laughs> That's a little German literature thing for everyone. So, that night, they slept where they were. How Aslan provided food for them all, I don't know. But somehow or other, they found themselves all sitting down on the grass to have a fine high tea at about 8 o'clock. So we've got a kind of genteel sort of middle england version of the loaves and fishes that's nice okay calm down bootleg jesus yeah also this is a much more literal eat pray love but for 1940s orphans instead of rich white women so the battle's over the witch is defeated hooray the children are taken to the big castle the not the witch's one but the the one from the prophecy care paravel is that what you call care paravel <laughs> <laughs> and the children are crowned four-way monarchs also, why are they crowned? By what law are they monarchs? Is it just because they're the first four human children to be here? Yeah. I, I By default. Isn't Aslan the king that they've said the whole time? Stop questioning it. I... He's like the king like Elvis is the king. <laughs> the kids are the king like how a king is a king. Anyway, Aslan Irish goodbyes his way out of the coronation, <laughs> and the children actually do well in their roles. Um, their first stop after their coronation is to absolutely slaughter the rest of the witch's army because fuck amnesty. They liberate the dwarves and satyrs from being sent to school. And I'm like, I'm sorry, are, like, what is happening here? Is this like, oh, these are colonizer schools you don't have to go? Or do these kids just actually not want them to get an education? Yeah, I think it's that. Well, this is the next bit. They generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. This is like a sort of like nanny state shit. Like, I don't want the government telling my kids to learn geography. You know, it's like that, innit? This bit genuinely made me throw up in my mouth. Yeah, yeah rubbish. It's like real... Sm- again, it's Little England shit. Peter grew up into a real stud and he ditched his dumb Wolfsbane nickname and became Peter the Magnificent. Oh, no, we've got to have the... Peter... <laughs> became a tall and deep-chested man. What does deep-chested mean? I know broad-chested. He's deep-chested. <laughs> fathoms and fathoms yeah. deep, that oh, chest. Yeah. Susan, her big accomplishment was that she grew her hair out until it reached her feet. Gross. 
and I guess did nothing more except serve as a good bargaining chip for Peter's alliances. Because, yeah, because all the kings were married. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're told nothing about her except she got marriage proposals. Edmund grew up more grave and quiet and became really good at giving counsel and became known as Edmund the Just. And Lucy was happy and blonde and known as Lucy the Valiant, and all she really does is be hot and make princes want to marry her, and all these children, in short, got yassified. Okay. As you get older, you might not start to notice some changes. You might become, this is what I wrote, you might become deep-chested. <laughs> Hair starts growing in weird places, like down to your feet. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) then they hear news that the fabled white stag, remember that right from the beginning, the fabled white stag, which of course grants a wish, has been spotted hereabouts. They chase the stag into a thicket where horses cannot run. They have a new way of talking, don't they? Yeah, because they're like adults now. They've been living here for years, and they have this very weird, affected way of talking. They don't talk like they're from the 40s. They don't say, by Jove, no more. Peter is like, fair consorts, let us now alight from our horses and follow this beast into the thicket. For in all my days, I never hunted a nobler quarry. They walk into the woods alone, and they come across a most strange device, an iron lantern. Edmund remarks that it worketh strangely upon him. It runs in my mind that I have seen the like before, as if it were in a dream, or in the dream of a dream. (laughs) Lucy suspects that if we pass this post and lantern, either we shall find strange adventures, or else some great change of our fortunes. So, you know, they see the lantern, they don't even remember it. But they all resolve to head forward together in the name of Aslan, whatever adventures may fall to them. Uh, They fall out of the wardrobe, and they're all children again. Okay, here's my question. Hmm. They're living in Narnia. They're completely... They've forgotten their normal life. The lantern is in Narnia. How do they not know about lanterns if lanterns, like, naturally exist? It's an interstitial zone. It's the intermundia. Come on. Gotcha. Basic Epicurean cosmology. (laughs) Oh, that's gonna be the that's gonna be the tagline for this episode of Basic Epicurean <laughs> Cosmology. So yeah, so they're they're kids again, they're back in the mansion, and it's the it seems to be the exact same day. No time has passed at all. The only thing they can't explain is why four of the professor's fur coats are missing. So they run down to the professor, they confess this whole story to him, and he's very wise about it. Maybe he's been to Narnia too. He says, Don't worry. You'll go back to Narnia again someday. Quote, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But you're not going to get to Narnia by looking for it. It'll happen to you when you least expect. The end. Ooh, franchise. And the thing that upsets me the absolute most about this novel is that these children have grown up into full adults, and they were probably swigging ale and taking the lives of other creatures and, like, pinching the butts of wenches and fucking nymphs and centaurs and now they have to revert into being children c.s lewis you're sick you're sad get help sad ending (laughs) would you like some casting yes please so i saw somebody comment on twitter with a title just a title and I've run with that. So the concept is mine, but the title is not. Okay. I don't normally give these film titles. Yeah. She's an ice-cold career woman busy staging a vaguely satanic coup. He's a thrift store Jesus and also a literal actual lion. 
When they find themselves raising four orphan kids, will they find the true meaning of Christmas and maybe love along the way? Christina Hendricks is the White Witch. An actual lion is Aslan in Hallmark of the Beast. Ah, very good. Now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. I have no idea why a boring story took so many pages. It's not worth reading, Kevin! (laughs) (laughs) In my opinion, this book is really horrible for me. The following reasons can tell you why I had such a thought. The pictures in it are so ugly and they do not fit the text the author wanted to describe. I like the pictures in my version. Maybe I will never read this book again. That's not a say that's the illustrator's problem that's what and then my favorite my absolute favorite the front cover of the book always scares me because the lion represents the devil people it can change our mind little by little into killing each other as hobby one star (laughs) (laughs) and then finally the one that we can't include on tiktok Edmund is begging to get pegged by the White Witch. <laughs> <That's terrible. laughs> would you like to do some analysis? Yes, I would. And let's go back to the hermeneutic edition of Measuring Worth. Oh my god, I Please. cannot believe you, you were still doing this You bit. wrote, oh yeah, in the script. So, <laughs> and, and now duplicitous I'm... <laughs> females, daughter of Eve. So, literal, the surface content of the story. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is an adventure story about a talking lion, an evil witch, and a magical wardrobe. There's really not much to say there, is there? Allegorical. The novel is a retelling of biblical narratives. So, yeah, Aslan's Jesus, the witch is Satan. We've already discussed that. The wardrobe, it's simultaneously a gateway to another world, so it's like the Garden of Eden or something, isn't it? But it's also a vehicle for revelation. So I think the Narnia adventure is a bit like sort of the kid's version of like the Book of Daniel or the Book of Revelation. They're kind of seeing into the sort of truth of the cosmos. Moral. The story is a guide for personal behaviour. The lion is a model of mercy and self-sacrifice. The witch, cruelty and greed. The wardrobe is a mirror for exploring honesty versus mendacity. So because Lucy and Edmund, they both respond to it differently, don't they? Edmund lies, Lucy is nice. And it's also a model for duty and desire. So the kids know that they have to go through it at the end. And indeed at the beginning. They don't just hide from Narnia. They know that they need to solve the problems. So I think it's a kind of, it's a sort of moral litmus test. Uh, also, don't like yourself in a wardrobe. That's the other moral thing. Brought to you by Mothers Against Wardrobes. Finally, anagogical. The children's foray into Narnia is a vision of the moral fabric of the universe. Good lions versus evil witches. The wardrobe, again, is a revelatory device, but it's also a means for them to return to childhood. You know, they've had this insight into the cosmos and to adjust their lives accordingly so it's really like a testament to our capacity to transcend our earthly state could we do a psychological reading yes we could yeah well uh, yeah they're they're all mad or they're all just kids playing pretend and the wardrobe serves as some sort of saucerian dark space maybe the womb yeah, in which very a- womb <laughs> in which imagination and liminality begin to mix with early socialization, internal coding, Oedipal desire, and penis envy, and burgeoning adolescence. Yeah, very good, yeah. That sort of psychological reading and that sort of very, like, like psychoanalytic reading is very close to that biblical hermeneutic tradition, isn't it? Even I was though... just trying to get in on some of your fun. Yeah, don't. I'm just saying, no, but I, it's good to think of the history of the discipline, isn't it? I think we need to remember that, that this discipline has a history, and sometimes we're trading in readings that aren't necessarily our own. It's called the dialectic. (laughs) Whenever I do something weird, it's called the dialectic. Anyway, 
moving on from that, uh, children's literature. So I was thinking that just building on the hermeneutic stuff, you can get away with a, a lot more with like allegorical and like other kind of non-realist literary devices in children's literature. And I kind of wondered why that was. It's almost designed to be absorbed without necessarily designed to be critiqued. But that leads us then to what, uh, you know, it seems all quite above board. There are the goodies who believe in honesty and mm. not betraying your siblings. And, you know, the baddies who turn people... Like, it seems very surface level unobjectionable. Yeah. But then all you have to do is scratch the surface. And reading this as an adult, there was quite a bit in this... The way it was framed that made me sort of go, hmm. Yeah. Especially about power and, like, Aslan's power. It has a kind of very fascist sort of... Quasi-fascist thing about, like, yeah. you know... And same with Father Christmas, weirdly. That sort of, like, trembling at the sight of, of majesty. And there are some people who are just intrinsically better than you. Yeah, and exactly. There were, there were bits in this that made me sort of go, did we have to frame it like that? That's yeah. interesting during the Second World War. Yeah, it's like fantasy's always, I mean, this is a controversial point because those people love fantasy, but I always thought like it has a real strong whiff of bigotry about it. Or at least you can do it well, but... You're not the first person to say no, that, I'm though. definitely I mean, not, no. There, there, there are a lot of critics that talk about how fantasy, you know, is, is pulling certain things from the real world that are maybe... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, like we talked about with the sort of different race classes yeah, and yeah. things like that. that yeah. I mean, there are ways of co making that more complex and more interesting. Yeah, I was touched by Edmund's redemption. I don't know about you. I just thought that was quite a nice bit. One of the savviest bits they have, I think Lewis is good in this, where he knows when to cut the camera away. Mm. It's when Edmund has that long talk with Aslan and we have no idea what was said. Yeah. And you just think, that's that's the wisest choice because if you had shown that scene of like, Edmund, have you learned? Yeah. <laughs> what, you know, that would just completely undercut it. But you know, you can feel the guilt like radiating yeah. off Edmund when we just sort of see him sort of bowing his little head and like, you know, kicking his toes. And you you remember what that was like yeah. as a kid. You almost don't want to see it. It's too horrible. Yes, it's yeah. Horrible. It's got Bacchus and there's antiquity, classical antiquity stuff. I was wondering, because Bacchus is at the beginning and then Aslan comes later, is it like the... Like the classical gods are kind of being replaced by this period of evil with the witch and then the finally Christianity comes. Is it a kind of mini version of the Christianization narrative? Oh, C.S. Lewis's American gods. Yeah, exactly. That's f***ed up, Daniel. Yeah. Also, another problem with fantasies, you're inevitably going to get sequels, aren't you? And it's like, it feels half like a cynical market thing, but also just like, I've, I've got all this lore and I just want to fart it out till the end of time. <laughs> uh, and it's just like this kind of awful crossover between like market logic and like weird pedants. Yeah, do we ever have a one-off fantasy world? Because I know what you mean. Like, it seems to be a waste to go to all the trouble of doing all this world building mm. to have it just be for one book. But yeah, at the same time, it is cynical. And it also has diminishing returns, doesn't it? The more you build up the world, the, the less magical it is. Yes. And that sort of basic sort of, you know, what you don't see scarier type thing. What about gender? Yeah. Boys are active. Girls, kind. This is what I've learned about boys and mm. girls from this book. I mean, at least Lucy is given some complexity in the beginning, yeah. but Lucy takes a real backseat mm. in the second half. Yeah. And Susan, what, what is she yeah, what there is for? Well, we kind of know what she's for, don't we? Because there's that... I mean, it's not as sexist as I thought it was going to be this book. Mm, it was more sexist than I remembered. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I expected it to be really sexist, but there's that bit in a later book, I can't remember it, which it's one. It's the last one, it's the last battle. Oh, right. Well, because I read this as a child and this infuriated me. So, it, spoilers if you want to read through the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia, but basically, years later, you know, in real-time Britain, so the kids are a bit older, so Susan's supposed to be about, like, 
15, 16 at mm. this point. Peter, Edmund, and Lucy go back to Narnia and have this great big adventure, and I think they all die in Narnia. Susan doesn't go back. Sounds, sounds like she made the right decision. Yeah, <laughs> because she was too into makeup. And she's grown up, and so she she can't believe in Narnia anymore, even though Peter is older than her. And Jezebel. She, and he does. But boys never lose that spirit of wonderment. Really? Would you <laughs> say you have a... So, play acting. Kind of ch- children's activities like that. That's threaded through the whole thing, and they're, they touch on it a little explicitly at the beginning, where they're like... Edmund, did you go to Narnia? No, we were just playing pretend. But, you know, it's the whole time Lucy's saying, like, oh, let's explore the house. Let's pretend we're Arctic explorers. And uh, Peter says, oh, this is going to be exciting enough without pretending. Um, and play acting is treated as something that's really beneath them. Mm. But the, the whole, the big question in this is, were they play acting the whole time? Like, that's the obvious yeah. reading. I think that's part of the charm, though, isn't it? Because it's got that, it's like a contradictory thing in itself that... The kids are always like, oh, I would never play act and always believe me, but mm-hmm. obviously they're really enjoying all of that stuff, aren't they? Like, I think that, isn't that the point that, it, like, because that's quite early on in a different way, there's that bit where Susan's like, oh, I think it might be bedtime, and everyone's like, you're just playing at being mother, mm-hmm. so you're like, it's, it's a pretense of maturity, but actually play acting, and I feel like that tells us something about the more broad conception of play acting in this. Well, and also I think kids are often quite like that. The, the language that they use when they're kings and queens for years, and all of a sudden their entire language register changes, even though... As no one in Narnia talks no, like that. No one yeah. in Narnia talks like that. So it, it's one of those things where it sort of hints to or winks at them understanding play acting, them having watched films mm. about medieval whatever. Yeah. It goes into the psychology, though, of these kids have also been living through the blitz yeah. and the sort of escapism on top of escapism. It's not enough to escape to the country. You have to then escape to Narnia, and then you have to escape through age. That's another thing about... There's a lot of talk about dreams and nightmares, and there's mm-hmm. repeatedly... I only read it once in the text, but there's repeatedly this motif of a dream of a dream. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it was like something in a dream of a dream of a dream. Mm-hmm. It goes on ad nauseum. That feels a bit like what you're saying here, that idea of an escape that within an escape, within an escape, mm-hmm. or like play within feigned maturity that is itself secretly play that goes mm-hmm. on. There's these, yeah, I think there's something like that going on. Christmas. I was going to say, we need to address the elephant in the room, which is, what the hell is Santa doing here? What's all this Christmas chat? There's Christmas in Narnia, so are we to expect then that the Narnia universe shares the Jesus narrative? Ooh. There's a lot of stuff about myth anyway, isn't there? So that, there's all that stuff about like, oh, you never see giants anymore in England, but they still have them in Narnia, and you never see nymphs anymore mm-hmm. in England, but they used to be ha- have them in folklore. So I, th- I think Father Christmas kind of falls into that mm-hmm. thing more broadly, that it's like what is mythical in the real world is based on a kind of a once existing reality of the real world that still exists in Narnia, and that humans are the things that died out. Because there's that bit right at the yeah. beginning where Tomnus has that book about... He's, called stuff like the myth of humans yeah where he's looking at us the way we would sort of look at so maybe it's just kind of like uh you know it's like a sliding door situation (laughs) so this is our christmas episode and i didn't know if you wanted to do some end of season stuff oh yes please yeah so what was your favorite text this year maybe castle of otranto or really? possibly lolita actually lolita was mine as well i think it was i was the most worried about reading that yeah yeah for sure (laughs) and it actually was quite good what was your favorite episode not the text itself but what do you think produced the best episode maybe Lolita again actually or Crestle of Otranto I think (laughs) there's a Canterbury Tales was quite fun too for some reason those three texts just keep standing out to me the other ones were a bit like Canterbury Tales I think was easily the I think that produced the best episode that's the most playful I think we've been in a while yeah 
What was your least favorite text? I'm not going to do least favorite episode because they're all favorites. Yeah. I hate to say it, but I think Twelfth Night. Although, I mean, like, I think I even preferred an Inspector Calls because I think we got more out of it, but I like Shakespeare comedy. I like mm. watching them, but ugh, it's a bit... It's not especially... Gratifying to read. Yeah, we're not in the way that we're doing here anyway. Also, it works funny with these histrionic texts like like Otranto, which we can make fun of, whereas Twelfth Night's already funny. Yeah, it is much harder to make fun of comedies. Mm. What about you? What do you think my least favorite text was? Crime and Punishment? No, it's still an Inspector oh, Calls. Okay, right. Apologies to the letter writer who scolded me on an Inspector Calls. Uh, I still don't love it. It's on at the Alexandra Theatre in Birmingham. Should I go see it then? Maybe, yeah. maybe Okay, maybe. I, I'd be... Look, I'm open to my mind being changed. Yeah. So here's some advice, and this is a real easy one. If anyone is ever killed in a book and comes back, or anyone sort of sacrifices themselves for another person, just say it's a Jesus parallel. You're going to be hard-pressed to be wrong. Everyone's going to pretty much accept that. And the hermeneutics go from there, don't they? <laughs> so in terms of, um, you know, season four, um, look, I know Daniel and I are way overdue to part ways, but every time I try, I keep thinking, we should stay together and have an LSD phase like the Beatles. Who's the Paul in this situation trying to keep it all going? We've... Ooh. No, in all, in all honesty, though, like, I, I don't want to get too sappy on this show, but not many people can say they, you know, have the most dedicated and, and funniest co-host in the world. So, Daniel, I'm just really glad that you get to say that. <laughs> I was really touched for a second. I was like, <laughs> finally some sincerity. And then, oh. No, I just... Of course, no, 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 it's You fine, know fine. you sparkle like a guy damn ruby you know i appreciate this very much so well, but i don't I mean, get sappy no no so. I, well yeah uh similar sentiments <laughs> yeah. you're the kind of mastermind behind the whole thing anyway so so here's our clue to the next episode kind of we're still sorting out season four daniel and i have just picked our text for season four and what we're going to do definitely is monthly episodes throughout the whole year without taking a break. However, we've also sort of put in some optional episodes. Um, so our plan is hopefully, if things don't get too busy, to do one big season, an episode every two weeks as normal. But, you know, life gets in the way. So there might be some times where we just do an episode per month for a little bit if things get a little crazy. We've decided on our text, so we will be back sometime in February. And it's a, I guess, a sexy text. It's a very, very controversial text. Do we need any other clues? It's set in the Midlands. The East Midlands. The mysterious oh. East Midlands. <laughs> and I don't know, do we have anything else to say? Should we just tell them what it is? Get nah, no? Nah, it's obvious what it is. Is it? You want a little Christmas present? Should we just tell you what it is? What do you think? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, folks. Yeah. Daniel says no, no no presents until Christmas morning. Yeah I, yeah, I don't believe in that. Well, stay tuned anyway. We'll be back in February. So write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen, rate, and review. Also, guys, follow Daniel on Twitter. I don't, but I, you know, I will continue to support his prosperity. And... I think I can com confidently say from me, from Abby, from the whole team, from corporate, <laughs> everyone, happy, bloody, uh, what was this, Christmas. Happy Christmas. Or Merry Christmas, anyway. Yeah, I didn't say that. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. 
Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.